Welcome to Horror Study Hall, the academic side of horror. I'm your host, M.A. Reynolds. It's time to get spooky. Welcome to Horror Study Hall. I am your host, M.A. Reynolds, and this is episode 10, Scare Tactics. Horror films connect with us in ways that other films cannot. They connect with us in a deep and personal way by using our fears and putting them front and center, exposing our deep and darkest fears. Filmmakers have many time-tested tricks up their sleeves to engage an audience and to help them experience fear. In this episode, we will be discussing scare tactics, ways filmmakers help audience experience fear. In Matt Glaspie's book, The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear in Film, he identifies seven scare tactics filmmakers use to scare their audiences. They are dead space, subliminal, the unexpected, the grotesque, the uncanny, and the unstoppable. In my research for this episode, I found that many agree with his categorizations, though some use slightly different terms. So we're going to talk about what these terms are and what these tactics do to scare audiences. We'll talk about movies that use these tactics effectively. So dead space refers to both negative and positive space created by the cinematographer. Negative space shows too much space around the protagonist. This shot causes us to feel unsettled, as if we are looking at all the space around the character for something to jump out. We're waiting for something to happen in the background. It causes us to be hyper alert to look for what the protagonist may not be seeing. Our minds are filling in the blanks with what we think is in the background causing dread. Lee Wannell's The Invisible Man is a masterclass in negative space. Many long, lingering shots of empty rooms, halls, and other environments causes the viewer to believe that the invisible man is there. Never have I personally been so stressed out by absolutely nothing on screen. A bedroom shot with nothing besides a clothing rack. An empty kitchen. Constantly was I looking for the invisible man or something to move, and almost every time, nothing moved and nothing happened, and yet I felt the sense of dread. The slow zoom in and zoom out used in these shots increased the dread as the mind is tries to fill in the blanks, tries to place the monster in that room. Another great example of dead space using negative space is the strangers. We see Liv Tyler's character in the kitchen. 
there's a wide shot showing one of the strangers in the background just barely in focus and in frame. We know he's there, but Liv Tyler doesn't. We find ourselves mentally screaming at her to turn around and look and see him there. And when she finally looks, that monster is gone. Positive space is referring to tight close-up shots, like extreme close-ups. Often, we're zoomed in on the protagonist's face to really see their reaction. We are unable to see the background, making us unable to predict what is going on back there, or to see if the monster is close by or ready to strike. It also makes the audience become empathetic to the reality of the protagonist's experience, feeling what they are feeling. We as humans tend to embody the emotions of those around us, which we explored in some previous episodes. How if we see someone afraid, it causes fear in ourselves. So the tactic of the extreme close-up or um, the positive space shot helps us to feel what the character is feeling and really empathize with them. A movie that really uses this quite well is Train to Busan. So the ending of Train to Busan is, is, is showing the main character, the father, outside on a train as he's slowly turning into a zombie and losing his humanity. The last pieces of his humanity plays on his facial expressions and in flashbacks that we're seeing. We are feeling extreme sorrow as his humanity slips away. We're feeling what he is feeling, the sadness of no longer being who he once was. Positive space is also used to make jump scares more effective. Take Sam Raimi's Drug Me to Hell, for example. The main character is in her car after work taking deep breaths after being cursed by that old woman. There's a close-up of the side of her face. We are there with her, trying to calm down, breathing, taking a moment from the extreme event that had just happened where she was attacked by the old woman inside the bank. When suddenly that same old woman jumps out from the back seat and, and attacks her. Most audience members probably didn't see that coming. Some did, of course. And the sudden burst of that old woman from the back seat that we couldn't have seen really jars us. We were focused on what was going on in the front seat, experiencing, trying to calm down with the main character. The similar trick was used in Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House when two of the Crane sisters are driving down the road at night having a conversation when suddenly the third sister pops in between them out of the front seat or back seat screaming, the tight shot was only showing the two main sisters having a conversation when suddenly you see that third jump scare. Um, and I think I speak for most of us that, that that jump scare was quite effective and scared the crap out of most of us. <laughs> the subliminal is referring to audio and visual cues in a film that may go unnoticed or that are very subtle. It's that split second flash of an image on the screen that you think you saw, but you're really not sure if you did. These images cause the viewer to become hyper-focused on what is in, on screen, to really pay attention, because they want to know, did I just see that, or was it my imagination? Did you just see that flash of Pazuzu in The Exorcist? Or was it just something you thought you saw? 
The Exorcist uses the flash image quite effectively. There are several instances of Pazuzu or the demon either being superimposed on another image or just a quick flash when you weren't expecting it. The ending of Psycho also uses a little bit of subliminal imagery. Um, you can see at the very end when Norman Bates is sitting in the interrogation room, having that internal dialogue in his mother's voice, and Alfred Hitchcock superimposes the mother's skeleton on top of his face. You can just subtly see the teeth over his mouth and a few other areas that were kind of off, but it's very subtle and it causes fear and dread in the viewer. The American remake of The Ring uses subliminal imagery quite effectively. Throughout a lot of the movie, there are quick flashes of that cursed videotape. The ring image will flash or some of the flies, uh, maybe some static in just seemingly random places of the film. This causes the viewer to pay attention to what is on screen to see if it happens again. Now that the movie has our undivided attention, we become quicker at identifying threats in the film. We are constantly looking in the background or looking for that next flash of an image. Audio can also be used subliminally. Low-pitched rumbling audio is often not heard but felt. We feel the audio vibrations but the sound is just either just inside or just outside what we are capable of hearing. Many films are starting to use something called infrasound to help the audience feel the vibrations. Now infrasound is just barely outside of what a human being can hear, but we can feel it. We can feel those vibrations and it causes us to feel dread. It causes us to raise the tension in our bodies and be more scared by what we are watching on the film. These sounds are operating just on that cusp to cause us to feel these th feelings. Um, I will be covering sound design in horror film in an upcoming episode. Um, so I'm not going to go too deep on this right now because there's so much to talk about in the, in the subliminal audio or just audio in general space. So be on the lookout for that. Often used in conjunction with dead space, the unexpected is one of the main reasons why I am personally drawn to horror. Even though horror does have several tropes, the audience can count on experiencing things they did not see coming. The jump scare is a very common example and trope of the unexpected. It can be overused in my personal opinion, but when used effectively, it can really cause the audience to feel fear, as we discussed with the examples of positive space with Drag Me to Hell. The unexpected is used most effectively when the film sets the audience for what they think is going to happen and then take a left turn. The most recent example I can think of a, of a good um, effective use of the unexpected is Barbarian. The protagonist shows up to their Airbnb only to find that someone is already staying there. The film tries to set up that the occupant of the Airbnb is likely the monster only to go a completely different way. I Now, I won't spoil this for anyone who has not seen it since it's a pretty recent horror film, um, but I highly recommend you check it out and see where this one goes. 
an older example of the unexpected that I feel like I could discuss more freely is Saw. This movie did a great job of keeping who Jigsaw was hidden until the last possible moment. Throughout the film, there are many twists and turns to make you think that it's a completely different individual. And at the end, when the reveal happens, most audience members did not see that coming. I did not personally see that coming. And it was one of the first times that a a horror movie had surprised me with the ending and who the who the um, antagonist was. Um, And that's one of the reasons I I like this one so much is it's not the gore. It's not um, any of the other aspects, but the fact that they were able to keep the quote unquote monster hidden until the very end is very exciting and interesting to me. This movie was honestly a breath of fresh air for me. Um, When most non-horror fans think of the horror genre, they usually think of this tactic, the grotesque. The grotesque is used for creature effects, body horror, blood, wounds, and disfigurement to drive fear. Humans are hardwired to be repulsed by blood and gore. It's built into us that we want to avoid being hurt, so seeing those images can cause us to feel physical pain sometimes. It reminds us how fragile we really are and triggers our natural fear of death. One master of body horror is David Cronenberg. I don't think you can talk about body horror without talking about David Cronenberg. Um, watching Jeff Goldblum physically transform into a fly into in the movie The Fly is really realistic and grotesque. Lots of fluids and transformations really draw up the the disgust level in our anxiety. While body horror and torture and gore is what most people think of when they think of the grotesque, there is another example use case for this particular tactic, and that is disfigurement. Disfigurement can show the audience who the monsters are, who the others are. It's used quite effectively in the, The Hills Have Eyes. The mutant family has physical deformities telling us that we should be afraid of them and that they're not a family that we should really be be around or be messing with. Um, It can also point towards Jason Voorhees' face when he doesn't have the mask on. His face is very grotesque and disfigured. In fact, that was one of the reasons he was killed in the original movie when he was a child is that he was a disfigured other. You can see it in films like Freaks, the classic Freaks, where they used actual sideshow performers as the quote-unquote monsters in that movie. Um, In fact, that movie was banned for several years because people found it so grotesque that they did not want want it to be shown publicly. Um, You can also see it in other ways with movies like Martyrs or Hostel by Eli Roth. Um, Most people probably think of those types of movies when they think of the grotesque. Dread or suspense keeps an audience engaged and on the edge of their seats. It is when the audience knows something is about to happen that the characters may not realize. The buildup of anticipation keeps us focused. Think of the first paranormal activity as a really good example of this. Every time the couple goes to bed, our tension starts to rise. The suspense and the dread increases. 
What will we see this night? Will the lights flicker on and off? Will doors close by themselves? Will somebody be physically harmed? Or will nothing happen at all? One of my all-time favorite movies uses dread and suspense quite effectively. The Changeling is a ghost story starring George C. Scott. Um, He loses his wife and daughter in a car accident at the beginning of the film. And he retreats to this creepy old mansion to continue his work. I can't remember if he was a writer or a composer. I want to say he was a composer, but I'm not, I can't quite remember right now. Um, In that movie, it's a haunted house story. There's almost no ghosts on screen. Everything happens off screen or through the use of sound or something as simple as a red ball rolling down the stairs. But the sense of dread you feel watching that movie is, is very high, very high. If you have not had the opportunity to check out this film, please do so. It, it is a really great movie, a really great use of the tactic of dread and suspense just to keep you engaged and, and wondering what's going to happen next. Dread is used most effectively when the film is building to what we think is going to happen and reveals something completely unexpected like Barbarian mentioned previously. The tactic of uncanny makes us feel that something is not quite right. Liminal spaces like the back rooms show us a location that is familiar, yet somehow off. The uncanny can be accomplished by using empty spaces, creative camera angles, or creative editing. Quick cuts and transitions help the audience feel like something is off, like something isn't quite right. Blurring the background or foreground images makes us try to figure out what was happening happening in the area we cannot see. In the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the uncanny space is used quite effectively. In the first film, Nancy walks into the hallway at her high school. We think she's going to the restroom, but something just feels off. It isn't until she meets the hall monitor and then sees her friend being dragged down the hall in a body bag that we realize that she is dreaming. The Nightmare on Elm Street franchise uses the uncanny imagery whenever there's a dream sequence to make us feel like maybe they're awake until something just really, really shows us that they are in fact dreaming. Everything seems almost correct, but isn't at the same time. The uncanny is also used quite effectively by making faces seem quite right. This is often referred to as the uncanny valley, when you see a face that just doesn't look quite right. It is why we are so thrown off by certain images of mannequins or robots or dolls. They look almost human, but we know they are not. Megan, in the new film Megan, is a great example of this. The doll is human enough to be recognized as a little girl, but her features are so unsettling with the blank look of her face and the smoothness of her skin that something just feels wrong. The Unstoppable is used in many horror franchises, but is so much more than Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. The Unstoppable can also refer to trauma that will never end to situations the characters can do nothing to stop. 
It Follows is a great example of an unstoppable force outside of a horror franchise. A slow-moving creature that will never stop until it has destroyed its target, and in doing so, moves to the previous target, is really scary. Even if you pass on the it, it could still return once it succeeds in taking whom you've passed it on to. Nothing you can do can help you escape your fate in the end. No matter what, some point in time, the it will come back to you and it will never stop until you are no longer around. Another great example is the descent. The women are trapped in a cave. Nothing they can do will help them escape their fate. No amount of searching or climbing or running will help them escape where they are at. Their fate is sealed and it is unstoppable. Try as they might, nothing will save them. Other tactics that I found in research for this episode that I feel are important are the use of color in film to cause certain emotions, the voyeur or monster perspective, and the general atmosphere of the film. If there's any interest in a deep dive in any of these areas, please send us a note. We would love to discuss them further with you. So that's it for this episode. Um, we've talked about seven um, seven tactics filmmakers use to scare us. And once again, just to recap, those tactics are the uncanny, dead space, subliminal audio and visual, the unexpected, the grotesque, dread, and the unstoppable. All of these tactics in in combination or one um, used alone really helps us fear what we are watching and engage our our tension our our what do I want to say our feelings of dread these keep us engaged wondering what will happen next and keeps us coming back to this genre for more Thank you for joining us for Horror Study Hall. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Horror Study Hall. Send us an email to amateurhorror101 at gmail.com. And you can also find all of the resources for this episode up on our website at horrorstudyhall.com. Thank you for listening and stay spooky.